What a calming text with a calming tune as we rest in the Lord's provision of his good shepherding of our souls. When even as yet we were not looking for that, he sought us out. He found us, he chose us, he saved us, he has gone after us many times when we have strayed from the fold, even to the rejoicing of angels that look and marvel at such repentance. That is true in our own lives, and may it continue to be true for the rest of our days. As we come to the end of Ephesians, I'll begin reading at verse 10 of chapter 6, as we now think about the last portion of this epistle that was written about the church so that we might know who we are and the work that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do in us for his own glory. Let's now hear the word of God, Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you, whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Our gracious Father, as we attend to the Word now, we pray that the Spirit would inflame in our ears and in our eyes a reception of your glory through the preaching of the Word, and pray you would weave these things into the fabric of our hearts. From out of those hearts will come the issues of life, and may those issues be to the praise and the glory of our God the Father in Jesus Christ, filled with the Spirit. We ask now that your spirit would attend to the preaching so that you would apply these things to our lives individually and to our families and to our children and to this church corporately, all to the praise of the glory of your grace in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Nehemiah had a very specific ministry and calling of which in time he came to understand and historically now we have clearly understood. As he returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls, he immediately ran into opposition. He faced threats, heckles, and the enemies who did not want to see the city walls rebuilt. But that was his ministry. That's what God called him to do. Samballad and Tobiah were two men that we know by name who opposed the Lord's work. It came to such a point of threat and danger that Nehemiah had to set armed guards around the builders. But the one thing he did not do is he did not stop building the wall. He continued until his ministry was fulfilled and God had accomplished his own purpose for his own glory through Nehemiah and the saints gathered around him at that time. This was the Lord's work and yet it was strongly opposed. Wherever God is at work in building up his kingdom, the enemy will oppose it and attempt to destroy what God is doing. Expect it. Paul would soon find this out in greater measure as he went to Ephesus, the very book to which he is now writing back to this church from prison. Paul spent a significant amount of time in this city and with the churches there, a couple of years even, and more so and longer than other times that he spent in most other places. And he also had what we read as some of the most notable victories in the church of Ephesus and in that city. But soon he would learn that where God's work was working for his glory in such a city as Ephesus, the spiritual realm would be energized to stand against it. You might remember that this is the time in which Paul was ministering with great power so that even handkerchiefs were were brought so that they might touch Paul and their, uh, their relatives would be healed. That magicians who worshipped the dark forces were converted in such droves that they then repented to the open extent that they were burning their sorcerer books in the open square. This was a tremendously powerful spiritual work of the Spirit of God And this darkness was being pushed out by the light of the gospel and through a man named the Apostle Paul. This final section of this epistle on the church addresses the opposition and the spiritual warfare that we Christians face every day. And as he's writing this church in which Paul had so much opposition... It was probably with a real heartfelt experiential knowledge and great earnestness and passion that he was writing these final words to the church of Ephesus. We face this spiritual battle as individuals. We face it in our families. We face it in our marriages and with our children and our children face this themselves personally and we face it as a church corporately. This is not something we should be surprised with, but rather something we should expect. If God is working here, the spiritual forces of darkness will try to thwart it. 
So that we are not merely ready for the attacks. That's not what the Apostle Paul would say. We need to be ready for that as a minimum. But we are to be proactively engaged in this battle. Because we don't live in the realm of which we see these things going on on a daily basis with our eyes, we do tend to neglect or forget that we are in a constant spiritual battle for the glory of God. Every application in the life of the church so far in this book requires a supernatural ability to achieve it. This epistle was written to show us what God the Father is doing through Christ in the Spirit-filled church for His glory forever, perpetually so. And the applications that we've been looking at in chapters 4 through 6 are those ways of living a new way of living the human life. It is a new humanity, recreated in the image of Christ, and so the image of God in us is being restored by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And the very power that raised Christ up from the grave is the power that he has enabled us to live victoriously. And Paul says, I pray that your hearts would understand this so that you will depend upon it. And as we live out this new humanity in which we have been spiritually born, where in Christ the image of God is being restored, we come to the place where even angels look at us and how we live our lives, and they marvel at the manifold wisdom of God and what He is doing through Christ in His church for His glory forever. And all of that sounds wonderful, and it is. But there's an important detail that we must understand, and Paul here will conclude his letter with this warning and application that the spiritual demonic forces that are stronger and more powerful than you, but not more powerful than the Holy Spirit that has been given to you, will do everything in their power to destroy anything that glorifies God. And this morning I want to preach to you on battling for God's glory. That is a part of you fulfilling your calling. As you walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, as you fulfill your calling with which you have been called, you are called to battle for the glory of God. It is a battle that you cannot achieve in your flesh, but it is something that you can be victorious with the Spirit. And that is why, as he entered into this last section, he exhorted us to be filled with the Spirit so that the battle can be won. The greatest challenges you face in your personal life as an individual Christian is a spiritual battle that is raging between your flesh and the Spirit. And the spiritual battle from within your own heart. And also the spiritual battles of the dark forces that rage against it, trying to incite the old man and try to keep you from depending upon that power that is available to you in the Spirit of God. This fourth and final section of application which the Apostle Paul is addressing to the church must 
apply to us as we engage in this battle for the glory of God. That is why we live, for the glory of God. That is why we have been born, to glorify God. That is why He saved us, to glorify Him. And this deals with the spiritual warfare in which all of us are engaged. And we must recognize it, and we must be in this battle in a very strong way. So rather than thinking of the spiritual warfare as mere survival, we need to think about it as something God desires for us to be engaged in that brings Him glory. And the spiritual realm will look and marvel at what God's people can do against the spiritual forces of darkness that they themselves engage in. Because of what God is doing through Christ in his church for his glory, you will be an offense to dark forces that oppose God. They can't stand what's going on here. They can't stand what's going on in your marriage and in your family and with your children. And you need to know how to defend God's purposes for his own glory against his enemies, which by way of extension become your enemies. So in chapter 6, verses 10 and following, Paul concludes this epistle in preparing us for this opposition and so that we can be successful in the battle to the glory of God. Now once I understand what's going on in the church, what God is doing through Christ here, for His own glory, all of a sudden I understand now why I will be assaulted for this. The whole church is going to be attacked. And you will be no exemption in that slaughter or that attack, I should say. It's not a battle against flesh and blood, but it is a battle in things of which I did not recognize or I would never would have known should, if God had not told me. He warned his disciples of this before his crucifixion, but he says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But be watchful, Peter. Be watchful, Peter. Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. See, our attacks are coming from those who are directly observing God. And they're watching what God is doing down here through Christ in a spirit-filled church for his glory. And two-thirds of those beings, those angelic beings, are marveling at what God is doing. But one-third of them who fell with Satan, these demonic angelic beings, are attacking us in order to thwart the very purposes of God himself. It is a direct a front against God when he attacks his church. So inseparable is Christ from his church that even when the Apostle Paul, Saul at the time, was going to Damascus and he was persecuting the church, Jesus stopped him in his tracks and he says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So inseparable is Christ from his church that to 
dishonor the church is to dishonor Christ himself. To blaspheme the church is to blaspheme Christ himself. And to rage, wage a war against the church is a direct affront to Christ himself. And that is the purpose. That is the purpose. And because of spiritual warfare in which we are now engaged in is a war between spirits. And this happens in the life of every believer and it happens in the life of every church, every congregation. And we, the Apostle Paul says, you now are engaged in this spiritual battle and what we wrestle with is not really flesh and blood at all. It's against these personal, malignant, malicious, diabolical, antagonists for the very purposes of God that stand against his purposes, that stand against his glory. And see, as we live for the glory of God, you're going to be attacked at the very place in which that glory is manifest. Now there's a proper humility to this that we all need to engage in, that we all need to have a... Sub, a a sober mind when we think about these matters. You are wrestling with fallen spirits that are far stronger than you are. But it is not because you yourself are so significant that they decide to pick up the battle against you. None of us are that significant. It's not us individually that he even cares about, but it's the cause for which we stand that is significant. It's the cause of what is going on here. About a month ago, we remembered a particular anniversary in the life of our country. It was the 20, I believe it was the 21st anniversary of what we refer to now as by three numbers, 9-11. And as soon as I say that, you know what I'm talking about. On September 11th, 21 years ago, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon were specific targets of our enemy, enemy against this country. And those attacks and those targets wasn't about the individuals who happened to be working in the Pentagon or those who happened to be working in the World Trade Center. No, it wasn't about the individuals. They could care less about the people's names or who they were there. It was what the buildings represented. It was the cause that they were trying to destroy. The financial and the military powers represented in these targets symbolize the American institution and what we stand for. Those targets were, in fact, symbols of our country as Americans of our story, of our narrative, right, worldview students, story and symbol. And so they were going after the symbols. They were trying to take down those symbolic targets that will cripple the cause. They were going after the cause. And that's why a believer like you and me are a target. Because if you can get a believer to say wrong things or to respond in ways or to treat other people discourteously or to bring a reproach on the institution of Christ, you've crippled the cause. You detract from the glory 
of God. If you deface the institution or you distort its picture, you affront the very cause for which it stands. And every individual Christian is an ambassador for Jesus Christ, renewed in his image. And you are an image that bears the cause. You represent the cause. And how you live your life will reflect on the church, where the church itself is a physical manifestation of Christ in the world. And each one of us individually and all of us collectively as the church will live in such a way that will either contribute to the glory of God or it will detract from the glory of God. And the enemy knows if he can get us to live in a certain way or to think a certain way or to do a certain thing, that will detract from and not contribute to the cause for God's glory. And that's really what he's after. He's after the cause. He could care less about you and me. So we should see why you personally and me in the church corporately are specific targets of the enemy for the intent to detract from the glory of God. That's really the reason why you are in the battle. If he can deface the image, it will detract from his glory. There are certain areas, however, that are particularly subject to attack. And all of those areas that God had just defined in the previous three sections of living out for his glory, this application of the church, are those areas that are particularly subject to attack, and that's why we need to be aware. For example, in chapters 4, verses 1 through 16, that very first application that came to us as far as Walking worthy of the calling with which we have been called is striving together for the unity of the faith and the Spirit. Where do you think that one of the targets is going to be for the cause? It's going to be our Christian unity in the church. Where even our diversity among us is that which enhances that unity, these will be special targets of the enemy because these are Matters of angelic marvel. Where, where the Spirit of God has given us power to be of angelic marvel in a supernatural way, that will also be the subject and the target of a supernatural battle that will take a front and, and be attacked on those very supernatural points. The enemy will often attack the very symbols of our unity. You think about that for a moment. What are our symbols of our unity? Give me one of them. What's that? The Lord's table. Give me another one. You're on the right track. Yes, baptism. Right? Two symbols of our unity are baptism and the Lord's table. And yet the enemy will take those symbols and he will go right after baptism and the Lord's Supper to bring the vision to be able to stand against the cause for God's glory. Think about how many churches are divided over the issue of baptism today. Either the mode of baptism, 
who gets baptized or the way you get baptized or all of the little details about baptism, you think about how the enemy has detracted from the glory of God in the way that we fuss over baptism. What about the Lord's table? You think about it in the same way. Oftentimes we come to the table not in union and communion, but divided and schismatic, and how the enemy can bring these things to bear upon our minds. But what he is doing is he is attacking the cause for which brings God the glory. Oftentimes he attacks, in that section again, the leaders of the church, because these are gifts that he has given to bring the church into unity. And leaders, and particularly ministers of the gospel, will be specific attacks of the enemy to try to get them to fall in order to detract from the glory of God, and that will also affect the unity of the church. Or even a different tactic where, where he actually takes the gifts of God and he then brings distortion in the body of Christ in serving in their ministry like the Corinthians had issue in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Or he can create disunity with false narratives and opinions that get propagated in the, with the body. That's the area that we addressed when it's called heresy. Now, all of these were addressed in that first section of application, but know that that's going to be a particular target for the enemy, and that's why we need to pray for the unity of the church and against those malicious, malignant, diabolical forces that would seek to destroy that unity. Secondly, in that second section that we picked up in chapter 4, 17, that carried us all the way through chapter 5, 17, was our holiness, We are called to live in contrast to the world, but that is a particular area of interest for the enemy to target. Because if he can minimize our contrast with the world, that will diminish the glory of God through his church, which we are called to be a reflection of his glory into this world. He will go after our character. He will go after our children's character. He will attempt to get us to compromise with truth. The way that we talk with each other, the way we talk about each other. All of this is a way in which the enemy can attempt to get us, the church, to lose the savor of the saltiness of which we are to be the salt of the world. In fact, in the old days when they would get salt, it was oftentimes mined out of particular salt mines, and the way a salt loses its savor is not by losing its molecular composition of NaCl, but it is really the way in which other things get added to the salt, such as white gypsum or limestone or something that is not a pure salt, so it doesn't really taste as salty because of the impurities that are mixed with it. And as it begins to lose its savor because of the mixture of something else, it's no longer good for the purpose of which it was given. And so it's just, you know, you just throw it out to be tromping underfoot by men. And that's the idea. If he can sow the seeds of, of the worldliness and worldly desires and entertainment and idolatry and materialism into the church where we lose our savor, we become less effective. God's glory is diminished. 
We are called to be the light of the world, a light not to be diminished, but a light that is meant to drive out the darkness and expose the deeds of the darkness. But this will be a particular focus for the enemy to attack. A third area that he will attack is our responsiveness to one another. This was the next section that began with submitting yourselves one to another, and then narrowly it goes on to describe the six applications of how we are to respond one to another. For instance, in your marriage, your marriage will be a particular target for the enemy. Your Christian marriage. And there's a lot of trouble today in the church and in its members' homes and in their marriages, broadly speaking. Church history proves that this has always been the case, that there will be a target of the enemy on your marriage and home life. Luther even said that he was so preoccupied at one time with counseling families, it was hard to get any other work done. So this is not anything new, but it is something to which you need to be aware. And the reason for it isn't that the devil is content just giving you unhappy marriages. That's not his intent. His intent is far greater than that. You don't even count as far as he's concerned. The reason is that God has chosen marriage as a special way to portray his relationship between his son and the church, his bride. And that is part of the symbolism of the cause for which God is doing for his own glory. So if you can distort or deface that image or that metaphor, do it in the family after family in the church until that metaphor is defaced and it becomes so defaced that it detracts from the glory of God. Now, that's where he's going. If someone came in from outside the church and found out that half of the marriages in the churches were, were in trouble, what message would that say to the institution of marriage? But more importantly, what would that say about Christ and his church? Can you imagine asking a particular woman or having a conversation? She says, yeah, I'm on my third Christ But if marriages are strong and they endure and spouses grow through the problems by the grace of God, with the gospel of God, with the forgiveness of God, with the repentance toward God, that would show something about the ability and the power of God and His ability to change people and transform their lives and their marriages to His glory in the church forever. Now, just set before a people, a divorce rate in the church that is just as high as it is out there in the world. And what do you see? There's no contrast there. So you can see that your marriage is going to be a target. You don't count. Your marriage counts. Let that one sink in. You don't count, but your marriage does as far as the enemy is concerned. You're a nameless and pointless as the people who went down in the World Trade Center, as far as the enemy is concerned. 
You are as unimportant in the eye of the enemy as they were. But the enemy is attacking the cause. He is going to try to bring your home down. Because God, by design, has chosen our home to portray the exquisite intimacy between Christ and His bride. And is there any wonder why teenage people and young adults are also particular targets? Folks, don't don't dismiss your Bible on these things. Those are things that you are battling, and this is not flesh and blood. You're not battling your spouse. You're battling something behind and more powerful. The spirits that are behind those things. And you have to be aware of this. For instance, have you ever noticed how a Christian can say something kind of off the cuff and maybe spontaneously after church, maybe outside before lunch begins? And it's probably, it may be something that's very insensitive and kind of thoughtless and careless, but nonetheless, he said it. And yet that sort of thing bothers another believer. And for the next six months, that comment will be churned over in that person's mind until finally, six months later, after the little comment, carelessly spoken, that has brewed in the mind of the hearer, erupts between these two Christians. And how do you explain that? How do you explain that? The Bible explains that those comments and that churning is satanically energized. That's how you explain that. They are replayed, they're brought up again and again to the memory. And not saying that your memory can't do that on its own, but these kinds of things are that which the enemy loves to play. I've always said that some of the greatest playground for the enemy is in your mind. He loves to play in the playground of your mind if you but allow him. And are you aware of how often those things are going on? And in fact, the Bible tells us in this very epistle that you are not to let the sun go down on your wrath. If you do, you allow the enemy to get his foot in the door. And then he wedges his way into your life and pretty soon bitterness can sit in in such a way that you don't recognize it, in such a way that your heart becomes bitter and angry and and to the place where your personality can change over this. Because in your mind, the enemy is having a heyday. That's why in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Pulling down of what strongholds? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ up here, right up here in your mind. That's that's the devil's playground, if you but let him. Anyone who's been in this church for any length of time 
can look back and see special times of spiritual assault here. Times of special vulnerability and uncommon pressures. And when you're in the ministry long enough, you get into a season like that and your eyes are open to what's going on. Oh, this is demonic. This has the signature of the enemy in our own camp here. It's like a fingerprint that the, the, the criminal um, detectives are going through and they're getting the fingerprints and they're looking and comparing and they're, oh, I, I see that this, this is the enemy. He's been at this for a long time. And the fingerprints are all over the place here. And when you see things that get a little crazy or a little weird or, or uh, particular battles that begin to flare up in an unusual way or, or a lot of narratives that are getting distorted or false gossip going around, the enemy is having a, a playground. We have to understand his, his footprint, his fingerprint, his signature in our midst so that we understand what's going on. When things get blown out of proportion, that's another symptom. Things that can become huge, which really are just a small molehill. But if, if, we, if we pressed it out and we prayed through it and we got the armament and the armor that God has given us and we follow that through and we battle for the glory of God, we often find out, oh, that was... That was insignificant. The thing that I made huge in my mind was just a little thing. And can you recognize these kinds of things in your own life? It is absolutely essential to hear the Bible's admonition and arming yourself to deal with those things. It's absolutely essential if God and His purposes are to be realized in your life. The weapons to fight these spiritual battles are spiritual themselves. You will not be able to win these battles in your flesh or with the way that you think about them. And so as we see here, without a lot of comment, let me just run through a few of these things that God brought, brings to our attention as he talks about our armor for this battle. He says, your waist needs to be girded with truth. Truth versus falsehood because God is the father of truth. Satan is the father of lies. And we have a battle for truth. Let your lives be sincere, truthful, faithful. Men and women, boys and girls of integrity. Never compromise with the truth or you play right in to detracting from the very purpose for which you were born. You have the breastplate of righteousness. This is not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness himself, of which I then receive by a living faith, and I have to continue to live by this faith because the just live by faith. Having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. And here we have gospel shoes. Gospel running shoes, if you will. A readiness to run to repentance, to run to the cross, to run to confession, to run to forgiveness and forgiving others even as God in Christ and for His sake has forgiven you. 
run with this gospel in your life. In the way you live it out with other people. In the way that God has lived it out with you. The shield of faith, trusting in God's word. Trusting in what he has said, trusting in his promises, living without doubt, living without fear, strong confidence in God and what he has declared to be true. Do not worry about what people think of you. Do not worry about their affirmations. Do not worry about their accusations. Do not worry about what people think of you. Do not worry about how you're received or how you're not received. Do not worry or think or have any thought about other people and the way you think they think about you. Be concerned with how God thinks about you. Do not be concerned with the circumstances of living faithfully. If I do this, then this will happen. No, you just do this and you live with this shield of faith, because that will protect your very heart. The helmet of salvation, being confident in God's work in your life, and having the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, not armed with your opinions, not armed with what you think versus what somebody else thinks, not giving philosophical argument, not even relying on church tradition, but with the Word. That is the sword of the Spirit. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is the word. We've gotten so far away from people of the word and prayer. Praying always. Your prayer life and your corporate prayer life of this church is absolutely essential to your personal well-being and the ability to withstand the attacks of the enemy. Apart from your faithfulness in these essentials, you will not be able to stand when that evil day comes. You can attend all the Christian marriages conferences available You can spend countless hours in counseling, but if you are not giving yourself to praying for your marriage and for your spouse, you will not be able to withstand the attack of the enemy. If you are constantly falling into sin and can't seem to get the victory over the life of pornography in your life, it is because you are not a person of prayer. If you are looking at people critically and have a difficult time controlling your tongue, you are a person that does not pray for other people with a spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving for God's grace and mercy in your own life. Parents, do you consistently and regularly pray for your children? Do you pray for their godliness? Do you pray for God to use them mightily in the kingdom of God? Do you pray beyond the time in which you will have them? Do you pray for God's protection over them? Do you pray earnestly for the life and souls of your children? This is a battle of which Satan himself would love to sift them as wheat, and they will be particular targets because they were addressed in this very epistle not many verses before. 
Your daily pray, prayer life in the word and spirit will be where the victories of your warfare are fought and won. To defeat the supernatural enemies warring against us, it will require supernatural strength which will not come apart from your dedicated life in prayer and in fellowship with that spirit, allowing him then to fill you and to take care of your enemies. Because it's more about the glory of God than it is about you personally. Now, God loves you personally, but your enemy doesn't. And God will give you the strength to overcome if you but abide with him. Now, I want to appeal to you in the conclusion here as if you were three feet away from me. It's just you and me. This is, this is a very earnest appeal from pastor to, to a sheep, friend to friend. I want to appeal to you to find your place in this body. You already have a place because you're baptized in this body and Christ put you here. I didn't put you here. Your parents who birthed you didn't put you here. Christ put you here. By divine design, he chose you for this. And one of the reasons why you may be so empty and unsatisfied is that you haven't found anything big enough other than yourself to serve. And perhaps nearly every decision in your life is how it may come back to benefit you in some way. Now I want to encourage you to find your place in the body for a greater cause than your personal agenda, your personal desires. If you can find your place in the body of Christ and be others-minded... And make yourself a part of the organic unified whole and join in us all in walking worthy of this supreme majestic calling to which God has called you and me. And to be alert to everything that threatens it. Deal decisively in your own spirit with anything that may become a base of operations for the adversary. Any little hint of bitterness, get that straight. Any little bit of deceit or untruthfulness, repent and get that clear. Any way of worldliness in your life that is causing a diminishing contrast with the world, make a decision decisively to deal with that. Any little bit of hint of, of Disunity in the body or a little discontent here because the body's not doing to you what you had hoped to be done or whatever it is, then that's something that I encourage you, exhort you to fit into the body being others-oriented, not self-oriented. Not trying to get some benefit out of yourself. Not trying to get some affirmation of other people, but trying to understand what God is doing here and then live for His glory, whatever that means in your life here. 
If we take this seriously, imply this, and make decisions in light of this for whatever is best for the body of Christ to the glory of God through Christ, there is no limit to the blessings that we will receive in this generation. And we have this generation to serve God. And that's all. You can only serve Him with your life in this generation. And you will not get a second chance. But there are no limits to what God will do with the people who have accepted their calling and have yielded themselves totally to it. So let's do battle for God's glory and for His name and for His church and for Christ's honor here. And let's expect Him to do great things for this church and for your family and for your individual and for your children. Because this is what Christ did to the glory of the Father and we are to follow Him in what His heart so delights in. His glory through Christ in His church filled with the Spirit perpetually forever and we are a part of this grand purpose. May God be praised. Be on battle for the glory of God in your own souls. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we would battle for your glory in the life of this church corporately. May we be faithful to the corporate prayer time so that we would pray against the enemies that seek to destroy the unity and the holiness and the responsiveness we have here one toward another and toward our God. We pray that we would be in guard and be watchful and prayerful for the battle of our children, that not a one of them would be lost to perdition, but Lord, save our children to the uttermost, every one of them who are members here. Lord, we pray for the victorious work of your Spirit in our marriages, that our marriages would endure and last, and it would not be survival, but it would be thriving in the graces that you've given to us as you have married us with Christ our Savior. Lord, may it so be in our own personal marriages. Lord, we pray for our relationships one with another and for the holiness to continue to grow in us as your peculiar people, that our light would so shine in the world and dispel all of the shadows that surround us, and particularly the darkness of this community. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in doing a great work here for your great name's sake, not for ours. And we pray that you would give us the victory in Christ filling us with the Spirit as we are filled with Him. We ask that you would fill us new and fresh this hour. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake and for His and the Father's glory. Amen.